This podcast is part of the Everyday Heroes Podcast Network, the network for first responders and those who support them. Hey guys, welcome to the Hero Academy podcast, the place where you can celebrate and highlight our frontline heroes, people such as nurses, firemen, EMS, police officers, and military are all heroes without capes. I don't care about politics, only positivity and purpose. I only care about those that have chosen to serve our society. I believe in collaboration over competition. Here, you'll learn the secrets and strategies that let ordinary people become extraordinary inside of their purpose. Sometimes we'll throw in some simple side hustles that everyday regular people are doing, things that you could do to make some extra money, especially if you're starting to think about retirement and what's next. Inside this podcast each week, you'll learn from people like you that were working full time but still found the time to create a course grow a big team, create a coaching program, a large audience, or a profitable side hustle. The steps they took, their backstories, and how they overcame their burnout that they were facing. The perfect blend of mindset and techniques. Carpe diem. Now let's get your dream lit for your freedom. I'm your host and coach, Super Dave. Let's go. Have a meeting with Adam Blaze, which is such an awesome last name. Welcome to this week's episode of the Hero Academy. If you are a fireman, police officer, a nurse, uh, any kind of first responder, military, you're in the right place. Adam, I'm so excited to talk with you today and, and learn about your story. Uh, tell us about you in three minutes. Go. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Okay. Well, listen, thanks for having me. I'm flattered that you think anything I have to say would be interesting to anybody, uh, but uh, glad to be here. It's an honor. Thanks for having me. Uh, so uh, um, I am in the twilight of my career now. I'm, I'm retired. Uh, most notably, I guess I, I did a full career with the U.S. Secret Service. Uh, prior to that, I was a Marine, uh, uh, enlisted in the Marine Corps a long time ago, got out, went back in, became an officer. I did that for a while. Uh, left the Marine Corps and then uh, uh, pursued a career in federal law enforcement. And uh, I looked at the Bureau, looked at uh, state, looked at the Secret Service, and uh, as luck would have it, everything kind of came through at once. Uh, and I had to choose. And I looked at all the options and, and benefits, and I ended up choosing the Secret Service for some specific reasons. Had a terrific career. Uh, did 20, just over 21 years with the Secret Service. Uh, and uh, of course, I was a little older than my peers because I had already been in the Marine Corps for a while, um, but I had a great time. And, uh, uh, you know, the career, the Secret Service career, the traditional career, if you will, is uh, kind of standard for most agents. Um, it's not... Um, standard for everybody. I mean, everybody, I, I had a little bit of deviation in my career. I had some unique experiences and opportunities that most other folks w wouldn't have. Uh, but, um, like, like, really what? um, well, uh, you know, things sometimes come out of left field. Uh, if you're an 1811 and I think other federal agents can attest to this, uh, G uh series 1811 is a federal investigator in the, in the government. 
you're basically the uh, um, you're, you're the adjustable pliers. You know, you, you, they can use you for anything. Uh, hey, we need an 1811 to go do this or do that. Uh, and it may be very much out of your wheelhouse, it, uh, other duties as required. Uh, so the traditional career, the Secret Service protection and investigations, uh, a lot of times you're, you're doing just weird stuff that's way off the map. Um, some of the things I got to do that were unique is I got to spend uh, almost four months in, in Baghdad and the surrounding area of Iraq, I guess I should say region and region. And we'll just leave it at that. <clears throat> uh, doing a lot of, uh, I went over there uh, under the uh, pretense or the uh, original mission uh, to investigate uh, basically counterfeit currency potentially being used by the Iraqi government following the invasion. Uh, ended up uh, being used for all sorts of things. Uh, not the most uh, Notable of which was interrogating high-value targets. Wow! Uh, this this was all post Abu Ghraib. If you remember that, there was a lot of controversy uh, with uh, how we handled Iraqi prisoners. Uh -huh. um, and one of the results of that was uh, in interviews and interrogation could not occur in the field. Uh, there became uh, there was instituted a, a formal process for bringing uh, captured HVTs back or uh, HVPs back to um, Camp Cropper or other detention facilities, and then you had to go through a request process to interview them. Uh, well, unless you had an 1811 with you. If you had an 1811 with you on your raid, you could uh, treat it just like any other criminal enterprise that we would interview. Uh, and, and you know, you've done this many times, I'm sure you go out, you get a call, you go out at 9 p.m., you, you identify the mope, you interview him, and then you find out it's his cousin down the street. So you go bust his door down, and then you interview that dude. And he he ends up telling you, well, it's his brother-in-law that's one neighborhood over. So, yeah, you'd roll into a 24-hour, two-day evolution where you're rolling up targets. Uh, and because you, you can do this, because you're actually able to interview uh, on scene um, because the requirement was that you have a federal investigator with you. So that was very useful. We were frequently grabbed by, uh, you know, fast moving teams, very dynamic folks, tier one, because simply we were 1811s. Uh, and, and I was in way over my head uh, very frequently. I'd look That's around at the, cool. compa the company in the helicopter and I was like, oh, what am I doing here? <laughs> so, <laughs> But it was good. I had a good time. Terrific people. Uh, uh, that that was a very rewarding short tour, but we were able to uh, create a lot of impact, make a lot of good changes, uh, and uh, it was a highlight. One of the highlights of my career. Um, I don't. I don't know why my my mind went to a bulletproof vest, but uh, between I was just thinking between the Marines the Secret Service, and then work overseas, you've worn a lot of different types of vests. Yeah. You get right? comfortable in Kevlar. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, now, when you were doing protection details, do they have special vests that are like for protection details? Well, we, obviously, it depends on um, what your uh, specific detail was. My 
I did two permanent protective details. Uh, my first detail, I was fortunate to work with President Mrs. Reagan out in Los Angeles, of course, as a former president, uh, long after he'd left office. And then my, my most, I guess, prominent protective detail was on the president's detail in DC at the White House. And uh, we did have a vest. We used, we grabbed what was most, um, um, the, the most front-loaded technology available at the time, the lowest profile, the highest protection uh, that we could get. And, and the vests were very comfortable uh, for the time. I mean, nowadays that's, that's ancient history, but um, they were expensive. You were fitted to them and yeah, you'd, we'd wear them uh, and, uh, you know, wearing a vest underneath a suit with all the other equipment when it's 98 degrees outside is, is you know, you wear that for a 10, eight, 10 hour shift. It's, it's a tough day. But, uh, I can know, only just, imagine in a suit. Stay hydrated. <laughs> I can only imagine wearing a full suit. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I can only I can only imagine. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's less than comfortable, but uh, you know, the alternative for you know if you needed to have it and you didn't have it on was just unthinkable. So uh, you know, required. How long have you been retired now? Uh, left the Secret Service about five years ago. Um, and uh, had uh, been doing a couple of things. I worked uh, as a as a director, security director for a while, uh, security investigations director. Uh, worked a couple of contracts uh, in uh, executive protection. Uh, looking at a couple other opportunities now. It's it's sort of nice not traveling at a hundred miles an hour every day. Um, it, the the travel, uh, especially in the latter part of my career became uh, kind of significant and, and it's okay. I really enjoyed it. You know, I, I've been to most countries, literally, uh, many wow. of them twice, yeah. And I've gotten to work with terrific people. I work with their law enforcement and you know, we're all the same. It doesn't matter whether you're, yep. you know, and Ukrainian, Russian, uh, Moldovan, uh, um, you're from Singapore, you're from, you know, uh, Nigeria, all the cops are all the same. Uh, the, the government may be different. The ideas may be different. Culture may be slightly different, but cops are cops no matter where you go. So I've, I've had a really uh, fortunate career. I got to work with some terrific folks all over the world and uh, got to teach. Other, I've taught in a lot of different countries as well. So, Other than the U.S., what countries would you say had the most professional police departments and then the reverse who it's okay now you can uh who who was the most corrupt gosh i i uh top, top two top three like like oh so, man this is this is bad <laughs> so the uh the most professional is a tough call um everybody takes their job seriously i i, I was very impressed with the south koreans very impressed with the shin bet in israel of course uh, we kind of started them off, did a lot of their training and they've evolved. Uh, they have a different mission, although they technically have the same mission, they work in a very different non, oftentimes in a non-permissive environment, uh, which is, um, you know, they have challenges that we don't see every day. So they, they do things a little differently, same with the South Koreans, but uh, as a result of that, they are completely switched on uh, when they execute their mission, you know, and you, 
you can't help but notice you're like wow these these, these guys uh they're ready to go to the wall on this so um, very very well trained yeah absolutely uh worked with the russians they were uh, terrific to work with um professional uh worked with uh um for that matter also i've worked with ukrainian law enforcement in an investigative capacity uh worked well with them uh i would say let's see the bottom if i if you're asking me for the bottom tier also that's a tough call um everybody in law enforcement and government wants to be professional and do well some of them are challenged they don't have the assets uh obviously that larger countries have um and when you say corruption let me just say this what we in the West and specifically the United States look at as, as a corrupt act or a corrupt way to do business, man, in 90% of the rest of the world, that's just how you do business. It's a facilitation fee, right? Okay. We look, I mean, if we looked at it from, you know, me sitting here, I'd say, well, that, that looks like a bribe to me. Well, that's not a bribe. That's how you get stuff done. You know, right, if you want right. to get from point A to point B, that, and quite literally, that's how most of uh you know non-first world and some first world countries uh non-developing countries actually work uh so you factor that into your budget you know you you bring things that might help a bottle of something that they might not be able to get there you know and um and and another thing that's worth noting too um personal relationships you know liaison you know you're in law enforcement when you're asking a a police department or a law enforcement agency to dedicate a significant number of personnel because the president or the first lady or the vice president or whoever want to go do this thing on this day in their country. You know, that that's a political effort. There's a little bit of diplomacy involved in that. So I found out that if you're willing to sit down and have a drink with these guys, have dinner with them, go over to their house, meet their family, man, that goes a long way. I mean, just the ability to talk to people uh, and in a lot of these older cultures, you know, Asia and, you know, Eastern Europe and all that, man, they're not going to talk to you until you have a drink with them. They're, they're just simply not going to trust you till you break bread with them. Uh, I was just going to say, if you break bread with just about anyone universally, uh, it will bring you closer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And in some places, it's a it's a prerequisite. And, and you don't know because it's not in the rule book. You don't go to some manual and it says, hey, you've got to be able to drink vodka like a fish, at least for, you know, no, it's, it's not, nowhere does it say that, you know, so you're constantly balancing professionalism, judicious decision making, uh, diplomatic uh, conduct uh, with the ability to break down those walls a little bit and, and just get to be a fella with these guys, you know, and, and the ladies as well. Did you ever see Burt Kreischer's skit on the machine? I don't, I don't believe I have, no. Okay. All right. So when we get done, I am going to send you that on YouTube because you mentioned drinking vodka. It, it will have you cracking up. He, it, it's, it's his signature skit. And it's so funny that he actually made a movie around it. Okay, I'm looking right. forward to that. I'll take yeah. a look at that. Yeah, I'll send you. I'll send you that link as soon as as soon as we finish up. But uh, and, and uh, it's worth mentioning too. Um, you know, uh, every country has their own version of vodka. 
vodka is ubiquitous around the world. Uh, everybody makes their own, you know, backyard hooch. So just, you know, it's worth noting that uh, that that's just like a, a, a term for, for everything. So one of my goals is to visit 50 countries. I just kind of pulled that number out of out of a hat. I've been to about 10 now, but 50 is like a number that I feel is a good amount to just see sure. a lot of the world. Tito's is my choice if I do have some vodka. I'm not a big drinker because um, I don't weigh a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and and I started late in life, so I just, I just never. It makes me sleepy. I never really well, enjoyed it. Well, Dave, but, I don't drink at all. I mean, my my wife and I may have a glass of wine a month. That's it. Okay. Except for drinking professionally on, I mean, where it's kind of diplomacy. I want to right. say required, but it's for, for diplomacy. I get it. <laughs> so you can imagine the consequences of me not uh, being measured in my intake. So, yeah. How much do you weigh? How much did you weigh when you were active? Nah, back in those days, I was probably around 180. Okay. And, uh, you know, it, it was, and you're constantly low on sleep. Uh, if you just got off a car plane, uh, you know, a 12 hour car plane, you're typically dehydrated. Yep. Uh, you're low on sleep, you're jet lagged, and now you got to go and do a full work day. Um, so you really got to be careful with that. Um, you know, one or two drinks, and, and then they're usually good good with that but but again that's that's one of the tools in your toolbox you know there's a lot of you know empathy for what they're trying to do you, you can't just and and I was very fortunate most folks I worked with were mature professional you can't roll into a small country town department and ask for hey I need this that and the other right it's just not realistic you really got to be measured in your request. Think about what's realistic. What are the things you absolutely need? What can you possibly do without? What can you do for them, right? Um, and, and we actually, um, there was give and take a lot of times. We ended up being able to do some stuff for the host country. Um, but yeah, 50 countries uh, is a good goal. I think, uh, and travel uh, begets travel. So yes. if, you, if you aim for 50, you're probably gonna keep going. So just uh, be be prepared. I don't see myself stopping, but um, I think fifty is a good number to shoot for in the beginning. I, and I do love I love to travel now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, um, you'll go to places and you'll think, uh, man, this is, you have such a good time. You'll end up going back two, three, four times. So, and I've done that with my family too. I've been to places professionally where I enjoyed it so much, uh, I, I ended up taking my family, uh, you know, on my own dime. And uh, what's uh, some of your top three destinations in the world? Well, it depends on what you're, what you're looking for, what you want to get out of it. But for my, you know, I wanted my son to see some of the iconic global landmarks and wonders of the world. So um, we, we've been to all throughout Israel, Egypt, Took him to see the pyramid. He's been inside the pyramid, uh, the big pyramid at Cheops uh, in Giza. Uh, he's been uh, down the Nile. He's been on safari in uh, South Africa. He's been to Botswana. Uh, wow. been, been throughout the United Kingdom, um, Spain. We did my birthday on the top of the Eiffel Tower once. So, And, and the, the job actually afforded us a lot of those opportunities. You know, I happened to be on a trip. 
and I got a great, you know, the government's giving me this great hotel room, uh, throw them on a plane using miles or, you know, get a cheap ticket and uh, try to make. I was going to ask, is there like a buddy pass for family members on no. the U.S. On the US dime. <laughs> yeah, you got to manage that yourself. But if you're good, you know, if you're good with your airline miles or you save up some money for last, yeah, and a lot of the stuff is last minute. I mean, you you get tapped on the shoulder and or and these days you get an email. Uh, hey, I need you to go to Paris day after tomorrow. Uh, you're going to be out, uh, you know, a week and then you're going to Singapore after that. So pack accordingly. So, you know, at that moment, you know, you got to go through your gear list, you, you know, what you got to pack, but then you start thinking, well, you know, and we homeschooled my son. So he had, uh, we had the opportunity to take him on some of these things. Uh, at wow. the minute. So um, yeah, it's, you know, you got to pay attention to your family. Uh, the, the, the career was very difficult on them. Uh, I spent more time away from home than I did at home. So when you can make it work, uh, you know, it's absolutely a good idea to, to consider that. Now, when you transitioned from working full-time five years ago to civilian life, I, I know you did still take some contracts, but was it a tough transition or was it easy? Was it like, whew, I can kind of like relax now a little bit? Well, uh, when I left the service, I, I you know, I, I wasn't tired of the job. I could have stayed. Uh, in fact, I hadn't maxed out in age. We can only stay till we're 57 and then mandatory retirement. Um, but I had an offer from uh, an employer, who I, a bank, who I'd been working with uh, in an investigative capacity. And uh, it was a terrific offer. The guy that made me the offer was a retired FBI supervisor. I, I'd known him. I'd worked with him in that capacity uh, at the bank. So I, I took advantage of that. I retired and, and moved into that uh, role and really enjoyed it. Had a great time, learned a lot, tough industry. Being a civilian is hard. Yes. So that, you know, we complained a lot and, and I would say it was justified the travel, the, you know, the balancing your investigations, your grand jury, your surveillances with your protection. And now I got to go to, you know, BFE and, uh, who knows, you know, that, that take, that's a different challenge. It takes a different type of toll on you. But having to be out in a position of leadership where you're mentoring, coaching, supervising, managing, and you still have to be creative, you've got to come up with a, a productive ideas uh, that are worth something, uh, you have to earn your keep, uh, that, that's a challenge. That's, you know, kudos to coming out of the government. You, it's a kind of a kind of a waking, an awakening. Yeah, I have a friend who says uh, he was a military guy. He says that he was institutionalized and he had to he had to come out of the he had to come out of the institution mindset. And because yep. uh, he was a high ranking member of the military and mm -hmm. he said it was strange to him when he would say hello to people and they wouldn't respond back. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Hey, Marine, I said good morning. Right. right. <laughs> No, I, yeah, it's, it's a culture and, uh, um, you know, I, I spent, and my dad was a career Naval officer. I grew up in the Navy. Uh, then I went into the Marine Corps. I, I miss that culture and I still conduct myself according to that culture. And of course the secret service and law enforcement in general is not very different from that culture. There's a lot of, uh, idiosyncrasies and terminology that we use. One of the hardest things, I, uh, 
other than cleaning up the language, uh, was um, getting rid of acronyms, right? Yes. <laughs> Try, trying not to say an entire paragraph in one sentence by using acronyms because people don't know what they are, you know? Um, well, as so, you know, I talk to people all across the country and every now and then they, they'll say an acronym and I think I know what it means, but I know some of my audience might not know what it means. So I always ask, hey, what's, uh, what's ATF? What's DEA stand for, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so you worked with every agency, haven't you? Every federal agency, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. I'd be hard pressed to think of one, if there's one I haven't worked with, I probably am not aware of what it is. Uh, it, it, one of my collateral duties uh, later in my career was in uh, COG, Continuation of Government. I worked in a program called the uh, Presidential Successor Program. Uh, a lot of that's classified and you know it's uh, very dynamic and demanding program. And uh, I'll tell you what I think it is they pass a little black book from one guy to the other guy. <laughs> There's everything you need to know in this book. Well, let me tell you, I'm not at the black book level. Uh, I was, I was the guy out there chopping wood, not reading from the book. So, um, but uh, yeah, it, it's, but by virtue, the fact that you're, you know, working with all these other departments within the federal government, uh, the secretary level appointees and their staff and their own protection, because people don't realize that the federal government has about, at the time I was in, I think we had 91 different federal law enforcement entities. That's 91 police departments within the federal government. And so each uh, cabinet level department has their own a basic version of law enforcement to include executive protection. So all these guys, um, obviously Homeland Security, Department of Education, Agriculture, all these folks have their own executive protection details. Uh, so in that, in that capacity, I had to work with all these folks. And I, I got to know agencies and departments I never would have imagined even existed. But uh, every time you uh, teach me something, I uh, I grabbed the pen just so you know. So like, okay, no. I had I had no idea that there was that many federal law enforcement departments. And some of them, you know, they're different in their um, mandate. Like the FBI, the Secret Service, the IRS, uh, uh, DEA. Obviously, they have investigative missions that uh, are very broad. Their their jurisdiction is broad, but their focus is narrow, according to uh, like Secret Service is, uh, uh, you know, financial crimes, uh, uh, computer uh, crimes, fraud committed in various ways, uh, transnational and interstate uh, crimes. The Bureau kind of does everything, uh, but they also focus on very specific areas too, the IRS, the ATF. All these folks have investigative authority. Now, in addition to that, you got law enforcement, like I said, Department of Education, has a protective detail. Mm -hmm. They also have uh, uh, basically the equivalent of internal affairs, uh, an inspector general uh, component. So um, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of law enforcement out there across the federal government that most people don't realize. You know, uh, they have have no idea what you know what's out there. Someone will produce a badge and say, "Hey, Department of Agriculture, uh, federal agent." They're like. 
what <laughs> you're come again <laughs> i couldn't believe how many different agencies i could identify when i was in washington dc just driving down the street you see around the capitol you see seven to 12 different agencies and different cars there's so many different agencies right there in dc it's it's amazing yeah yeah it's all you know and there's an there's arguments that those might be better uh they might work better if they were dispersed uh, around the country rather than everybody in D.C. Because the industry in D.C., whether you're in the government, the military, or you're a civilian, is a government. That's the right. industry. You know, right. if you go down K Street, um, you you know, it's all bazillion dollar companies that are mainly lobbyists and law firms, uh, and and the whole city is set up to support that kind of industry. Uh, so. You know, there's advantages to that. You know, if I had to go to a meeting at the FBI, gosh, I was just a few blocks away. It wasn't difficult. But um, might it be better if we disperse some of these agencies around the country? Maybe. Um, yeah. It, it, but it makes for an impressive tour. When you show up in D.C., especially for the first time, you got all the monuments, and then you're looking at all these built huge buildings, and you're like, oh, that's Department of Justice. That's the FAA. That's uh, the Department of Education, you know. It, it's intimidating to say the least. Yeah. And, that, and that's why actually DC was designed and built the way it was. If you take the nickel tour, right, uh, the, the, um, the original designers intended for DC to be an intimidating city. So when foreign heads of state would visit, uh, they'd say, hey, these people got their act together. We better not mess with them. Um, how far we've come. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, I try to stay away from politics, but it's hard. Yeah. It's hard not having that conversation. Um, what what kind of cases can you talk about that are closed or, you know, no longer classified that you found the most interesting or the most exciting or where you were working with another agency? Sure, yeah. Um, well, probably the most exciting were the real life uh, terror finance cases that were going on over in Iraq because that was no joke. We, we were we were uh, upsetting people and they were uh, expressing that. So, but but aside from that, um, probably uh, I've had the opportunity to work a few really significant cases. One of them was uh, back before Bitcoining other cryptocurrencies were popular, we had virtual currency. Uh, you know, you had the Linden dollar, you had uh, um, Liberty Reserve. Uh, well, Liberty Reserve was actually an investigation. It was a case uh, because that was a virtual currency uh, that a lot of organized crime around the world, not in any one specific country, uh, were leveraging to uh, commit crime, to commit fraud, commit violent crime, to launder money. Uh, so I was fortunate to be one of the key players in that. Uh, and that was a long uh, international investigation, traveled frequently to different countries all over the world. Um, got the cooperation at the end of the day of 16 different countries. We ended up executing arrest warrants and search warrants in 16 countries at exactly the same moment, all coordinated wow. in DC. Yeah, it was the largest money laundering case in the history, I think, of the world still. It was $6.2 billion. Wow. Um, 
and we had a number of defendants from different countries around the world. Um, uh, you know, all most of that has been adjudicated now, um, but it, it made a big impact. It was, um, uh, you know, it kind of set the groundwork for how we were going to regulate what was called MSBs, money service businesses, virtual currency, and then ultimately how we would look at uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain transactions. Uh, so it, it was the kind of the ground floor, the maturing of which is now still occurring. Uh, but that was very interesting and, and exciting, if not exhausting. Uh, yeah, that's, I, that's pretty cool. I got to meet a lot. I worked with a lot of, uh, you know, and again, I'm not, like you said, this is not political. Uh, current uh, current activities and, and issues notwithstanding, I worked with and made a lot of friends with Russian uh, uh, law enforcement and um, they helped and we had a lot of success. Uh, worked with the Ukrainians as well on that particular case. A lot of assistance from the Ukrainian treasury, the equivalent of, uh, and, and uh, the Moldovans and, and other countries around the world. Uh, again, like I mentioned earlier, when you reduce it down to the cop doing the investigation, everybody is on the same sheet of music, you know, so. A um, couple other, you know, I, I got to contribute a little bit to the Silk Road investigation, which was another, that was one of the first big Bitcoin and marketplace, dark web marketplace investigations, another international case um, with, you know, far reaching implications that we still deal with. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of various large scale fraud cases that uh, end up inevitably being international because, you know, now with the, you know, and I was fortunate in my career, I got to see kind of the maturing of the internet and commerce via the internet to include banking uh, and, and, you know, just purchasing and buying. And in that period, um, in that time, which is still occurring even today, uh, that's when, you know, criminals are very creative. The smart ones, you know, the, the ones that aren't so smart just duplicate what's already been done, as you know. Right. But the but the really brilliant ones, the ones that are creative and come up with the new way to commit a crime or commit fraud, that that's what I enjoyed. You know, some of the uh, uh, original, the Shadow Crew and um, Mazafaka and uh, all these folks on the Internet, these hackers and and fraudsters who figured out innovative and effective ways to uh, separate people from their money. <laughs> There will always be there will always be some type of scam, some type of fraud, it, because people keep coming up with more and more creative ways to separate people from their money. <laughs> yeah, and well, and people get careless too. Yes, um, you know we those who are not maybe dialed into some of the IT issues and uh, some of the some of the risks and threats that are out there. You know, you log on to your bank page and you do your transaction, you have no idea what's going on in the background. Um, plus, you know, contemporary scams, you know, huge romance scam issues. Uh, we just had the big uh, uh, scam with the uh, COVID payment uh, that the Secret Service was part of, uh, something like, uh, I forget what the amount was, $2 billion uh, in scam that occurred that we identified. Just, yeah, tremendous opportunity when money is handled carelessly. And I think a lot of people these days are guilty of that. Uh, I'm not going to point your fingers, but um, 
you know, there's, it creates a huge opportunity for fraud. And, and that's what we're seeing. The one that blows my mind the most is when people call up and say that they're a, uh, some kind of federal agent, like an IRS agent, and uh, they get people to send them gift cards over the phone. Like you're going to pay the federal government with gift cards from 7-Eleven or from Walmart. Right. You know, and, and, you know, we could insert all kinds of comments about common sense and intelligence here. But the fact is, there's a lot of folks who just don't know any better. They don't have firsthand experience with, um, you know, online commerce and marketing and banking. And, and maybe they just don't know. Now, there is probably a fair amount of laziness, stupidity. I don't know. There's some of that out there, too. But I think most people... I try to give people the benefit of the doubt. They just don't know better. And and to the extent that all law enforcement can educate people about stuff like that, don't be a victim. And this is how you can keep from being a victim. Because if you're a victim, your whole family's a victim, your spouse, your kids. Uh, so don't be a victim. Um, so so I, I did a lot of that. I did a lot of education. Again, I was fortunate to travel uh, with the ILEA, uh, International Law Enforcement Academy, run by the State Department. Uh, and the DOJ got to teach all over the world and um, learned a lot too. A lot of the countries I would go teach at, you know, I think I'm I'm showing up with some kind of useful information for them. And in most cases it was, but then we do the round the room thing. Hey, give me some of your experiences. And I end up learning more than they learned from me. So, uh, and of course I take that back to our Academy and I try to disseminate that to our folks as well. But uh you know, I can't say enough about liaison, really, the, the ability uh, in any industry, but especially law enforcement to conduct and maintain liaison is just priceless. It's absolutely priceless. It comes down to relationships. Right. And, and, and they take work. You know, there's give and take. If, if you're going to take something from a guy in Malaysia, if he's going to hook you up, you better figure out what he's going to need a year and a half from now, you know, and, and try to help him. And, uh, you know, I got to be part of a, an IRS task force, gosh, for about four years. And it was a global uh, um, international commerce, basically uh, a global money laundering task force. We looked for money uh, from organized crime and would follow the money. And uh, we had some unique uh, uh, operating procedures, I guess. We were trying to get uh, some good casework going, and we ended up cold calling some of the embassies in D.C., meeting with their law enforcement liaisons and saying, hey, how can we best achieve this in your country? What can we do for you that might make you willing to work with us? And we got plenty of answers. Hey, you could help us with it. We had uh, MLATs that hadn't been adjudicated. We assisted with that. Um, hey, What was that? MLATs? MLAT, a Mutual Legal Assistance Treaty. It's, so when a country, a smaller other country that has a presence in D.C. or at least uh, an understanding uh, um, where uh, we will investigate their crimes in assistance of that government as they will assist in investigating crimes against the U.S. or a U.S. citizen, uh, sometimes the MLATs back up. If they're not, you know, if it's a a one of or a smaller crime or a country that's not, you know, really big and powerful, 
sometimes those things get overlooked or delayed. And, and you know, we, we were able to help with that process and uh, get things accomplished. And uh, it, it, again, that's liaison. That's like, hey, what, what can I do that will help you out in your day-to-day -day, uh, so that I can repay you or get you to help me? And at the end of the day, everybody wins. Uh, and it, it, it's all about partnerships and uh, making sure you keep within the boundaries and the, and the rules, uh, but offering assistance where you can and, and trying to be effective. Are you, uh, what's your next project? You working on anything? Uh, right now, I am actually pending uh, an interview for a position uh, that uh, I'll just keep to myself for now because there's a lot of guys like me out there. <laughs> Good luck. But, yeah, thank you very much. Um, uh, I, I've kind of been at a slower pace and it's been awesome spending time with the family. Uh, I'm ready to, uh, to do something again uh, for a little while. I probably don't want to jump into another 20-year career. As I say, have you thought about your book? Yeah, nah. Um, you know, I've been asked that a few times. Just, you know, I'm not the book writing type. I just, I, I feel that some of the most interesting things I might have to say are also the things that we shouldn't talk about. You know, the Secret Service has, by, you know, according to our mission, we have access to things that, are privileged uh, and privileged from a, not necessarily classified, right? Although maybe some of them should be, but you know, once you classify a document, you can't use it. You might as well lock it up and forget it exists. So a lot of things uh, are just personal to the people, the first families, plural, that I worked with uh, and the things that would make the best writing, probably not inclined to talk about. So. Um, you know, over a beer, one on one, that's a different story. But I respect, uh, I respect that. I, I and, and I'm not, I'm not down on the guys who write books. I enjoy them. I read them all. I love them, uh, and that's terrific. I think uh, they're all done in a professional way. I just, I don't know. It doesn't have to be secrets of anyone. It could just be stories from your time being overseas and like running into difficulties you know it doesn't have to be about necessarily your uh, your detail it could be just you know problems that you ran into and how they were solved yeah that's a good point that's a good point I might I might consider that I've I've got pictures and like documents and paperwork from almost everything I've done so I could I could uh, probably put something together I have to think about that see you uh, have uh, I, I could help you with that you have so many years years and years of stories that are just stored up and like I said it doesn't have to be anything private where you're um putting someone's business out there it could just no. be it could just be strictly your experience when dealing with trying to get through somebody's customs you <laughs> and know, saying Go ahead. There was a guy when I was I was at um, a forward operating base. I think it was Warhorse in Iraq. Um, we were doing some stuff out there, and uh, I was waiting for a ride back to uh, my office, which was at Camp Slayer. And I was middle of the night. I'm waiting at a at a Butler building, a hangar for a helicopter, and. Uh, 
there's a group there waiting with me, I don't know, five or six other people and a couple of soldiers. And turns out this group was the band um, uh, Evanescence, I guess. Yeah, see, that's an yeah. awesome story. So so they come up and start talking. And I have no idea who these people are. They're like, I got all my gear on and my weapon and everything. Like, hey, can we take a picture with you? I'm like, sure. So I'm posing for pictures with all these guys. And I don't know, 10, 15 minutes later, one of the soldiers walks up to me and goes, okay, so what chapter of your book is that going to be? I'm like, brother, I haven't slept for two days. I have no idea what you're talking about. But, and then he starts talking to me, he goes, well, you know, I, you, you know, based on some of the things we talked about, you should probably do a book. And I'm like, ah, oh. I don't know. I, back to the original discussion when we started, I'm not a writer. So I got you. I possibly. Got you possibly might have somebody else do something oh you could dictate it too you don't have yeah. to write you could just uh do an interview like this and dictate it um how do people get in touch with you, well, I'm, on link you? I'm on linkedin uh i haven't uh, been maintaining my linkedin page like i should but i'm plain language uh in the clear no sipper or nipper net just uh, out in the open uh if you look up my profile, Adam Blaze, you can just message me on LinkedIn. Um, you know what? Uh, you know what blazing up means in the hood? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's such a cool last name. Yeah, yeah. Well, and there's a, a few people have said, you know, they've asked me for my name. I'm Special Agent Adam Blaze. Nah, come on, dude. What's your name? <laughs> yeah, that's a great name. That's a great name. It sounds like a. It sounds like a code name. Yeah. It does. And then uh, when I was Captain Adam Blaze, uh, I had problems with that, too. But, uh, you know, whatever. It, it is what it is. Hey, I respect your time and I appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for your, your years of service. And uh, I just have five last questions for you that I ask all my guests. What's your definition of a hero? Well, someone who uh, serves others without thought of themselves. I mean, and that can manifest in a lot of different ways, you know. A lot of different people can be heroes in different ways. I agree. I couldn't agree more. And um how do you save yourself nowadays when you're starting to feel stressed out? PT. I, I ruck. Uh, I don't run as well as I, I used to be a cross country trail runner. I just put the weight on and I go for a ruck and it's awesome. By the time I'm done, I'm exhausted. I haven't got the energy to be stressed out. Uh, more people, you know, even for the people who don't like to run, if you just go out and you take a brisk walk, I guarantee you'll feel better. Whatever it is that's going on in your life, you will feel better. So, yeah. so many people need to need to just understand that advice that you just gave. It's it's so good for you. Um, well, if you you get out and you you do that, you get your heart rate up put a little weight on your back and, and just turn it into a PT session, you know, it, it's purifying. You know, you can say, you can say a prayer while you're out, you can meditate, you can just whatever. But when you're done, uh, it's awesome. The endorphins are flowing and, and uh, yeah, that, that's how you deal with it. Yeah. That natural high. It's, it's like nothing else. Would, uh, would you ever consider going becoming a coach or going back to teaching yeah absolutely uh, in fact i've looked at positions uh, in that capacity i've taught a number of times in my life i've taught at our academy in Beltsville. Yeah, you mentioned. 
yeah, I, I uh, enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, absolutely, I would do that. And what's your, um, what's your greatest power? What's your best ability? <laughs> my best ability is to realize my limitations, is to understand um, I am a sinner. I am, you know, have very good reason to remain humble, uh, but I still have potential. Uh, and I need to realize I can balance the two. And just for fun, my last question for you, if you had a comic book superpower, what would it be and why? Uh, well, I mean, it's obvious. I'd fly like Superman. I mean, <laughs> what? The dude can fly so fast, he can go back in time. I know, I know. So, so that, that ability actually produces a lot more abilities that you wouldn't even consider. So, I mean, it's kind of like, a, that's like a no-brainer. Adam, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for coming on the show. All right, all right, family. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Everyone I interview, I've chosen for you guys because of their story. And I hope that you get some value every single time. If you did get value or just, just simply enjoyed the episode, please share the episode with someone that you know. If you know of a guest, a frontline hero that has an amazing story, something uplifting or a positive message, hit me up in the contact form of www.davidleith.com or DM me at Instagram at davidleith1. Subscribe to the show because I have some really phenomenal guests coming up in the next few weeks that you definitely don't want to miss. All right, one.